This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Karen Tumulty, columnist for The Washington Post and author of the new landmark biography, The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience at the Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our upcoming Reaganism Live events and how you can participate, visit our website, reaganfoundation.org slash reaganinstitute. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. We have a live audience here today. We're excited. Um, I'm excited to welcome our guest, Karen Tumulty, who wrote this fantastic biography, The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. Uh, it's been out just over a year now, right, Karen? Not quite a year. Not, not quite, quite a year. Okay. A paperback coming out in a month or two. But there you go. So everybody, go on Amazon if you don't have it ready. You can get it for a little cheaper with uh, with the paperback edition. Um, and of course, we're in this uh, centennial year for Nancy Reagan, which makes this opportunity to have you here at the Reagan Institute all the more exciting. We'll, we're going to have a conversation, and then we'll have some uh, perhaps questions from the live audience here. Uh, there's so much to capture in, in this really exhaustive biography. Uh, a tremendous uh, research obviously went into this all while you were working at the Washington Post. Karen, how does one do that? That's, that's amazing. Well, that, there's a reason it took four and a half years. Okay. I think even four and a half years given the exhaustive research. How much time did you spend in the archives of the Reagan Library? I know there was you know, references throughout to the, the Reagan Foundation Library. I spent a I spent many, many, many weeks there and made several trips. And for one th thing, you sort of have to, first of all, learn your how to navigate the archives. Um, I, you know, Robert Caro says, you know, who's done the exhaustive LBJ biography, says turn every page. And that really was what I was trying to do. I mean, at one point, I could tell you every single magazine the Reagans subscribed to in the early 1960s. But then you have to start kind of sorting out in your head, you know, what's important, what isn't. And then you have to start negotiating for the stuff that isn't in the public documents, the stuff that are in the personal archives. And that is not run by the National Archives. That is run by the foundation. I hope the foundation was friendly. They were, but I, I tell you, I still, if I, I could go back and spend years there and not, not come to the bottom of it. Well, I'm, I'm pleased you didn't follow Robert Caro's approach in writing this book because <laughs> four volumes uh, would have been a lot to prepare for for this uh, event, and, and the one volume I thought was great. Thanks. So congrats uh, to you for getting it done in, in one. Um, you know, I, I talked to one author once, uh, and they describe that the key to writing a book is um, really understanding, you know, the backbone of the book. Like, you can't write the book until you figure out what's, what's binding it all together. For you, at what point during this research and writing the book did you figure out, okay, that's the backbone, that bridges, brings it all together? It, it was easily, easily two years into the research hmm. where it really began to sort of fit together for me, not only was this a great love story, which would have been the easy book to write, but the degree to which these two people needed each other, the degree to which they filled out and completed each other. And quite frankly, you know, and I think most fundamentally to this book, 
you know, the role that she had both in his rise, I mean, she was absolutely crucial, and also as his chief protector uh, in the White House. Um, there, there's a very famous presidential scholar, Richard Neustadt, who, who talks about the Nancy function, that every single White House should have somebody to play the role that Nancy Reagan did, where she's just watching the back of the principal. She's, she has no other agenda. than And that's what you see her stepping into again and again and again. In the 1980 campaign, she recognizes that he needs to blow it up and right, start Sears over. Sears is not going to work, right? Right. He, uh, you, you see it through um, any number of issues, not because she was a policy wonk, but she knew what her husband needed to be the best Ronald Reagan he could. And certainly, I think there is a very strong case to be made, and I do make it in the book, that Iran-Contra, which is the biggest crisis of his presidency, might have turned out differently if Nancy Reagan hadn't been there to almost single-handedly run the rescue effort. And that's the end uh, of, of the uh, second term of the Reagan administration. You hit on a couple of things here. Chief protector, perhaps protector of the legacy, um, not a policy person, but someone who could work around the corner. I want to get to all of that, but obviously you spend a chunk of the book talking about her life, her before President Reagan, before President Reagan uh, entered the world of politics. And what stands throughout all of it is that this is a woman with remarkable radar, like sensitivity, like a, a sensor that any tech company would want to kind of get their hand on today because, wow, you could just see everything coming, not just around the corner, but around, you know, 10 steps ahead. Where did that come from? Uh, it's so funny, and that is the word so many people use with me. Jim, James Baker, who was the first White House chief of staff, said she had incredible radar, better than his, in my view. Um, I think that it goes back to her childhood, uh, which was difficult in many, many ways. Um, I talk about how she was essentially abandoned for six years by her mother, who her, her parents, her biological parents' marriage was essentially over with by the time this inconveniently timed baby arrived. Her mother, very shortly afterward, essentially leaves her with relatives in Bethesda, um, and so she can go off and pursue her acting career. So Nancy Reagan spends six, seven years of her childhood just yearning, yearning for this absent mother. Um, ultimately, her mother remarries. Uh, she absolutely adores the man who would become her adoptive father. but. He doesn't adopt her until she's in her teens. And she has to essentially engineer the adoption herself. Mm. So I think that she, you know, it, it was a survival skill for her. Just as I think some of the aspects of Ronald Reagan's personality you see as the survival skills of the adult child of an alcoholic. Um, he was very non-confrontational. You know, always wanted to sort of believe the best in people. So it's highly complimentary because President Reagan, you know, perhaps not willing to be confrontational when it came to personnel decisions, oftentimes that was 
Nancy Reagan's uh, uh, advice and, and, and expertise. And sometimes if he didn't, you know, he didn't necessarily uh, want to get rid of people when she thought they needed to go, so she'd find other ways to get rid of them. Well, and that, the, there, there are certainly some good anecdotes in the book on that. Uh, before we, we, we jump to the years in politics, you know, one other piece which you uh, emphasize in terms of just conveying their deep commitment to each other were those years where President Reagan um, you know, left Hollywood. Financially, they were insecure. Um, the home, as you described, bustling with children, and he's on the road. Um, here at the Reagan Institute, we have uh, one of the great Penley pictures. The artist uh, Penley, who, who loves Reagan and has done a lot of uh, work on, on President Reagan, it shows Reagan, it's the GE Penley. Tell us about the significance of those years, the GE years. For Reagan, it was clearly where he started to have it deepen his political outlook, his connection to the American worker, but also it, 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 it was a pivotal time in terms of their relationship and how she viewed him and his aspirations and kind of whether she was willing to sign up for it. Well, if I could even step back one further step to the two of them meeting. Um, certainly, she spots this newly divorced, pretty good-looking actor in Hollywood pretty early, and she's determined to make their, their paths cross. But Ronald Reagan at the time was not necessarily somebody you would have spotted for greatness. He, as I said, had the scar tissue of being the adult child of an alcoholic. His first wife has essentially has essentially walked out of the marriage. He, his, he's hitting middle age, and his acting career is kind of not going anywhere. And he literally is a broken man when he shows up for the first date. He is standing on crutches because he has broken his leg in like six different places. I mean, he says, 1949, he was hit bottom. And then he said, and then along came Nancy Davis and saved my soul. So she does, you know, it takes a while to convince him to, to get married. She was there before he was. Right, exactly. She's very patient. Um, but she does, you know, he is kind of, he's not loving acting like he did at the beginning. And the movie business is changing, and he's lost his contract at Warner. She loses her contract at MGM. And they really are kind of, scraping bottom. I mean, he does the most humiliating thing he ever does, which is he hosts a floor show in Vegas. Las Vegas. <laughs> um, but then, out of that floor show comes this, because he's so good at this, at being an MC, comes GE. The, the, the GE opportunity, yeah. Yes. And the, the deal with the GE show, which becomes an instant huge hit on television, is that he does get to travel the country. Part of the deal is he has to go out and meet literally tens of thousands of General Electric employees. He writes in one of his own books about he spends so much time walking these, these concrete floors of these factories that sometimes he had trouble getting his shoes off at night. But that really is where he meets a lot of the people who would someday become known as the Reagan Democrats. These are middle-class people. They are sharing their frustrations in life with him. And, and he really begins to get a feel for the rhythms of the country and the rhythms of such a 
you know, gigantic portion of the American population that really didn't feel like anybody was listening to them. And, and obviously the, the, the ability to communicate and connect uh, would just build over time as, as his political star And rose. he, by the way, has, has also begun this, um, th this shift from kind of left to right. I mean, he grows up a the new deal. tried and true yeah. New Dealer, a Democrat. Uh, he's, got, he's become really disenchanted with the tax system. The, the wars that were going on in the Hollywood unions have turned him into a real sure. anti-communist. Uh, so he, his own political philosophy is shifting even as he is developing this field. I couldn't really discern this from the book, but now that you mention it, did uh, Nancy Reagan's political outlook, was it formed already and shifted with him? Um, or was that not even the way she approached the issue? It was like, you know, where, where President Ra where Ronald Reagan is, I'm going to be, um, and, and didn't really have a decided view. You know, one of the great myths about Nancy and Ronald Reagan is that her father was a conservative and somehow he influenced Reagan. That which, I mean, quite frankly, is just another way that people who have kind of sold Reagan short like to sort of suggest that his ideas, his philosophy didn't come from him. I don't really think she was terribly ideological. Mm -hmm. uh, her ideology was what's best for Ronald Reagan. I mean. Later, we find out that she has maybe different views on abortion than sure. he does. And, uh, you know, she comes out very bravely at the end of his life for stem cell research, right. which certainly does not make her a lot of friends in some parts of the Republican Party. But I think her main, while he is out there, she, you couldn't see like an inch of difference between the two of them. Um, I want to get to uh, Nancy Reagan and the right, because I do think your book does a great job of showing it's a little more complicated than the prevailing narrative here at the Reagan Institute. Right. We like to conquer the prevailing right. narrative. We do that a lot. Um, but one, one more thing before we get into the political years. You write about, and it's known, that Reagan was a person, President Reagan was a hard person to penetrate, who really knew him. Um, there was always this degree of, of, you know, what a wonderful person, but the intimacy was something that was, was difficult. And there was no one closer to President Reagan, of course, than, than, than Nancy Reagan. But as you're describing the, the, the courting years, right, it seemed that to be that maybe that was always something she was trying to do, right? She, she was there before he was. Talk a little bit about uh, kind of the sense of, of, of President Reagan and, and how Nancy Reagan was perhaps the only person to tr truly know the man. He was, as, as much as he had a great feel for the country, as much as he could sort of connect with people in sort of the masses sense. He was personally sort of a remote figure. If he had his druthers, he'd be out on the ranch by himself, you know, reading. He, he writes in his, one of his own books, he writes, I've never had trouble making friends, but there's always a part of myself that I hold back. And Nancy writes, he doesn't let anybody get too close. There's a wall around mm -hmm. him. He lets me closer than anyone else, but there are times when even I feel that barrier. So, and in the courtship, I mean, she's made up her mind pretty early, but there's, there's a couple of years where she has to sort of be pretty patient for, for him to sort of 
come around. And he also wrote, you know, I did everything wrong, and I'm just so somebody was looking out for me because I almost squandered the best <laughs> yeah. thing that happened to me. Well, uh, uh, certainly from the letters that you profile, he he came around. He definitely pretty strong. did. Wow, uh, not not letters I want my wife to see because right. clearly I am I am failing in that regard. Um, one more thing that, that I was struck by, I didn't fully appreciate how much life on the ranch was a part of their relationship. So uh, as everybody in the room knows and, and, and viewers uh, may know is, uh, you know, you think about Reagan country, you think about that ranch in the Santa Barbara area, um, and it's rustic, it's not Hollywood, this is not, you know, Bel Air. Um, and I think most people say, well, that's a true Ronald Reagan, and uh, we have a great picture here at, at the Reagan Institute of you know President Reagan signing the first economic reform package. He did it at the ranch because that's where you know it was there to help the everyday American, the GE employee, right? Not something that was going to benefit uh, some big corporate interest. But my sense from your book is that that was also tr truly something that Nancy Reagan shared. You know, it, expand on that. Had she been left to her own druthers, she would not have spent all that much time at the ranch. In fact, apparently she would sit by the pool on the phone constantly at the ranch uh, calling her friends. But she did understand that he needed that, that, he, that the, the ranch had sort of a, a restorative effect on him that um, he needed to, to recharge, and that's really where he was happiest. The other thing about the Reagans that was interested, interesting is that they used Camp David more than any other president before or since. Hmm. Almost every weekend they could, they were out there because if she couldn't get them to the West Coast, that it was the same thing. And, and they usually wouldn't take many people with them, just a, a few aides. And the Secret Service told me, you know, we know, knew to kind of give them some space. Because he, that is where he would, again, sort of recharge. Uh, at, at one point, um, one of his national security advisors, Michael Deaver, comes to him and tells him, he brings back this thick sheaf of documents that, that he has given Reagan for the weekend. And he says, cut this in half by 60%. And, <laughs> and he says, what do you mean? He reads the whole thing. And he says, that's exactly it. Cut it in half, you know. Give because, him his time and space. You know, you give him, he would go through it. But, but she really wanted him to have this time to himself. Uh, let's go to the political years. Okay. Um, and just reading the book and trying to absorb it kind of thematically, it seemed to me that there was a bit of a tussle over what it meant to let Reagan be Reagan. And even your, your anecdote now that Nancy Reagan wanted him out of the White House, at Camp David, or at the ranch. Um, when it comes to policy, you said she wasn't in, you know, somebody interested in shaping policy or somebody who was uh, interested in, in policy per se. But gosh, she did have an impact. Uh, I think you convey that best in your story where she invites George Schultz for supper. Share that. This, I think I've thought of this so often, given all the things that are going on in the world right now. But so, what happens? This is February of 1983. George Schultz has been in the job as Secretary of State seven months. He he really didn't know the Reagans all that well when he's tapped to replace Al Haig after sort of a 
short, disastrous stint. Um, <laughs> so Washington gets socked in by this gigantic blizzard, one of the biggest blizzards of the century. And George Shultz has just come back from a trip overseas where he's been to China. And he gets this call from Nancy Reagan saying, why don't you and your wife come over for dinner tonight at the White House? It'll just be the four of us upstairs. So Schultz and his wife, Obi, and Schultz himself told me this story, go over, and he thinks it's just going to be a social evening. And he is surprised because both of the Reagans start pounding him with questions about the Chinese, like what kind of people are they? Do they have a bottom line? Do they have a sense of humor? And then the conversation moves on to the Soviets. And Reagan starts talking about how, you know, he really wants to engage with them. He's very confident of his own skills as a negotiator. All of this is a revelation to Schultz because what he knows of Reagan is that the administration is populated by hardliners who believe there could never be any such thing as a working relationship with the Soviet Union. They are presiding over the biggest peacetime defense buildup in US history. Reagan has decades of anti-communist rhetoric, but it suddenly dawns on him. He said, I suddenly realized this guy has never had a conversation with a big-time communist leader, and he is dying to. And at that same moment, George Shultz realizes that was the whole reason Nancy set up this dinner, that she wanted to get the Secretary of State away from the National Security Council, away from the guys at the Pentagon, and to let him hear directly from Ronald Reagan this sort of, you know, he was a very much of a hawk, but he was a hawk who was also an idealist. And, it not, and Schultz also begins to realize in that moment that he has found an incredible ally in the First Lady, that she, she doesn't want her husband to go down in history as a you know, hip-shooting cowboy from the West, he, that she really sees his place in history as you know, somebody to, who could sort of bring the Cold War to an end, not because she had any strong you know, geopolitical views, but she knew her husband. She knew him better than most of the people around him did. And she also, I think, in many ways, was much more focused on his place in history even than he was. It's kind of remarkable that George Shultz played such a prominent role in realizing this feature of President Reagan um, and that there was no pre-existing relationship between President Reagan or Nancy Reagan. Um, yet he was able to kind of discern this. And there's a great quote that he could quite, didn't quite understand why anybody tried to accomplish anything in the Reagan administration without using the relationship with Nancy Reagan, making her ally. That it was kind of seemed obvious to him and others, obviously, chiefs of staff, national security advisors, others couldn't figure that out. And she, as with, was the case with James Baker, she becomes his ally in a lot of cases against the hardliners. I think Nancy Reagan is one of the reasons that Ronald Reagan went through, what was it, six national security advisors. Uh, she, we have some veterans of that National Security Council here where that might be traumatic for them right. to recall. Yes. Well, you know, it, but it was a tension, right? I mean, we had a chance to chat before we began this conversation. You know, think about 1976. 
President Reagan does something that would seem to violate his 11th commandment, which is thou shalt not speak ill of a fellow Republican. He goes up and challenges the sitting incumbent, Gerald Ford. And much of what he's challenging Ford about is detente, this notion that we're going to engage the Soviets and their kind of their place is fixed. And we just have to live in a world with the Soviet Union. And that was truly Ronald Reagan at the time. And, and, and so it was there. Yeah, he was no fan of Kissinger either. So. Uh, that, that, correct, right? The, 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 the kind of the prince of detente. Do you think in your mind was, was, was Nancy Reagan comfortable with those years? Or was that always something that she had a reservation about? She, um, she, when Reagan decided to run, and it was controversial even among some of his closest advisors, some of the members of the kitchen cabinet, I mean, you don't take on a sitting Republican president. But, you know, once he was in, she was in. Now, he comes so close to winning the nomination. She would later say that for all of the difficulties of that race, that that was the one that stood out in her memory more than any other, because there were so many what ifs in 1976. So in 1980, and this is according to a number of people I talked mm. to, including Ed Rollins, who was the 84 campaign manager, 1980 rolls around. And Reagan is actually kind of ambivalent about whether he wants to try this again. And at least according to what Reagan told people around him, it was Nancy who was saying, no, this, this is your moment. You've got to do this. Now, again, I don't know if it was, it was rewriting history, but that was what Reagan certainly said. And there's something else there as well, how instrumental 76 was, in that you know, they're at North Carolina, and she's basically regretting doing the whole thing. And I don't know if the language of years was something like she was going to turn on President Reagan or doubted him. She, so 1976 is sort of going along, and you hit North, the North Carolina primary, and they are so out of money in the campaign that, like, the hotels and the charter flights are demanding money in advance. I mean, he is just scraping bottom. And at that point, Nancy is like, this is getting humiliating. Uh, she... She And she goes to Lynn Lofziger and says, they're having this conversation in a hotel room, and she's saying, you've got to get him out of this race. This is getting horrible. At that point, I think, like, the last five of the last six RNC chairmen have come out against him. Only one was H.W. Bush, who he, couldn't, because he, he was director CIA, of CIA. Yes. Right, yes. It's, you know, all these guys. The whole party is arrayed against him, and she's like, we've got to get out of this race. Reagan walks into the room and realizes what this conversation is. So he says to Nofziger, even though he knows this is Nancy making the case, I'm not getting out of here. And he ends up coming back and winning North Carolina and really coming very, very close after that to winning the nomination. The last contested convention. And that was the last time, at least in my research, I could ever find that she didn't believe in him. I mean, from then on, it was like, if he was in, she was not going to doubt Which obviously him. paved the way for, for what would play out later in 1980 and 81. Um, let's go back to the, to the Schultz piece, because 
uh, it introduces the seminal contribution, at least in foreign policy, but how everyone remembers the Reagan presidency as winning the Cold War. And President Reagan, his outlook obviously had a huge part to do with it. Um, as you've outlined, uh, Nancy Reagan encouraged and facilitated, beginning with that supper, the, the, the ability to engage in that personal diplomacy. Mikhail Gorbachev, you know, having these, these general the secretaries partner. die one after the other creates that op opportunity. What was uh, her role in the various summits? Right? So we have, you have Geneva. You have, of course, uh, the wa Washington. She didn't go to Reykjavik, which I want to get back to. And then, of course, uh, uh, to Moscow. What was, what was her role in, all, in, in that diplomacy? Well, uh, first of all, there's, there's another supper in the book, too, which is uh, shortly after Reagan gives his very famous evil empire speech. Nancy Reagan hated the phrase evil empire. So Stu Spencer, who was their longest serving political advisor, uh, another dinner, a little private dinner in the residence, and they, the Reagans are still going at it about evil empire. I mean, this is a real married couple. They'd argue about things. <laughs> and finally, Reagan just wants to shut her down. So he turns to Stu and he says, okay, Stu, what do you think of evil empire? And he goes, well, I, yeah, they are an evil empire, but that was really kind of tough. And at which point Reagan goes, what are we having for dessert? He just doesn't want to give either <laughs> of them anymore. So she um, once, and how many general secretaries did they go through? Was, Gorbachev was like fourth or fourth, fifth. Fourth, yeah. Uh, she, once Gorbachev, and, and the Kremlin has done a big generational U-turn, Margaret Thatcher has told Reagan, you know, this is a guy you can talk to. He's not like the other guys. I mean, he's tough, but he, he, you can get him off his talking points. Nancy becomes obsessed with the idea of getting to a summit. And you read in, like, Michael Deaver's book, I mean, she was badgering everybody, at, you know, at birthday parties, dinners. She was just grabbing anybody she could. It's like, we've got to get to the summit soon. It's got to be big. Uh, Jim Kuhn, uh, who was Reagan's personal assistant, told me on the flight over to Geneva, Nancy Reagan was as euphoric as he had ever seen her. So she, again, you know, she is sort of trying to set things to make sure that it's ambitious and bold. From president to statesman. I mean, this was the opportunity to and get beyond, you know, the... the claims that he was a warmonger or... Exactly. And she's... Um, she, another thing that you find, I mean, people would sort of uh, use her interest in fashion and decorating stuff to diminish her. She would actually use those state dinners, and I think the Reagans had more of them than any other president. She would actually use these as kind of diplomatic... Uh, opportunities. They would be small. They would be thematic. Um, and she, she got Travolta to dance with right. Princess Diana. I mean, right. that was that was a nice little nugget in the book there, which but, she engineered, right? Right, right. Uh, so. uh, all right. Well, let me ask you about the one summit she didn't attend. Well, it wasn't a summit. It, I think it's technically um, it was a meeting, and this is in Reykjavik, um, and she has this kind of. She likes Gorbachev, but doesn't like Mrs. Gorbachev, and, and, and stays home where she go goes there. And actually, in my mind, that's 
one of the more significant moments in terms of how, uh, in the diplomacy, because Reagan walks out famously because he would not give in to Gorbachev's demand that he kind of seize pursuit of, of the uh, of Star Wars program. Yeah. Uh, kind of interesting to me that, that Nancy Reagan wasn't there. Kind well, of Reagan held the line, but she was back in Washington. So first of all, the, and I go into the relationship with Raisa Gorbachev Raisa, quite yes. a bit in the book. You would think these two women would have a lot in common. They were both their husband's closest advisors. They were both strong. They were, they hated each other. So, Reagan, she wasn't nice. I mean, in your profile, right. this is not this is not on Nancy Reagan. Right. Reagan is mean. Right. This is well, so, but so they have the first summit, and then there is this meeting in Reykjavik. But it's not supposed to be a summit. It's supposed to be whatever is not a summit. <laughs> and at the very, very last minute, Raisa Gorbachev announces she is going. And they've already said spouses aren't coming. And Nancy says, she's challenging me here. You know, she wants me to, like, blow up my schedule. And so she decides not to go. And she decides she's going to monitor the whole thing at a distance. And she tells Jim Coon, the executive assistant, you call me every single day and you tell me what's going on. But she talks about how she sees her husband leaving mm -hmm. the last minute, the last negotiating session with Gorbachev. And again, everybody's thinking they're getting so close to a big arms deal. And she said, I had seen him look like his face looked what I saw yeah, on television. Yeah, clenched a, jaw, like she a, knew something was I'd seen awry. that a few times, but not very often. And she, you know, she again recognized that. Well, uh, of course, that actually played out to be a pivotal moment, which allowed for uh, the subsequent INF treaty. But it isn't initially, I mean, all the pundits, all the news media, and or everybody's like, oh boy, Reagan blew this one. Mm. Uh, but it turns out that the public, first of all, the polling, people wanted him to hold the line, and it does turn out to, to be something that One of the things works. I love about the, uh, the story of, of that meeting in Reykjavik is they're all panning him, as you've described, and the response, as I understand it, was, well, we'll just take it to the American people. That was Reagan's mentality, and he, and he gave a, a fantastic speech, which I think contributed uh, to the reversal uh, of, that, of, the, of the narrative, and he has this great line of, um, you know, two things I'll never give up, freedom in, your, in the future. And that's what Gorbachev was asking uh, Reagan to do, which he was unwilling. Did Nancy Reagan like it when, when, when President Reagan took it to the American people? Kind of how did she view Reagan the communicator, the great communicator? Uh, she trusted him, although in, it's interesting because at some very, very key moments, who she didn't trust the people in the West Wing. So, for instance, in Iran-Contra, when he has to give his big speech to the country and acknowledge that he's traded arms for hostages, she didn't want the West Wing comm shop coming anywhere near it. She goes out and gets her own outside speechwriter, Landon Parvin, to do it. But she did trust him in key moments. There's a very famous moment in a, a debate in New Hampshire where uh, the, the I paid for this microphone <laughs> moment where he essentially ends the, the race for George H.W. Bush. But it's a very chaotic situation. 
um, John Sears told me they they weren't even sure. I mean, there's this big fight over who all's going to be in the debate, and Bush wants it to be one on one, and Reagan wants all the other candidates there, and the the auditorium is just full of like hundreds of people, and nobody knows how this is going to turn out. And at the last minute, it is Nancy who says to John Sears, send him out there. He'll be fine. And mm. sure enough, Reagan rises to the moment, and essentially that's the so end. So that confidence in him that he would deliver. She, she knew he could, she, she knew him well enough to know that he was going to find something in the back of his head that was going to work. The so famous concerns that she had with chiefs of staff and national security advisors, you've been talking a little bit about her perspective on speechwriters. What's your sense of the people who supported President Reagan in speeches? I mean, it's known that he spent a great amount of time with the speechwriters, with the speeches, putting in his own text. I mean, some of his you know, uh, most celebrated speeches, like the Westminster speech, you know, his chicken scratch is all over it. Um, what was her view of the speechwriting process in the White House? Um, she, she was very, um, she was very wary mm. of people around Reagan who wanted to use him for their own ideological ends. There's that Sometimes radar the again. Pe the, the people she would refer to as the flag flying over the cliff conservatives. She believed, as Reagan did, that, you know, if you could get 50%, you know, of, of uh, you, she believed in compromise. That's why you said 50%. I hear it more about 70, 80%, but it wasn't 100%, right. clearly. Um, so, um, but it's the other thing about Reagan that I think people, it's only when you really read a lot of the stuff that he wrote in his own hand. I think he was in some ways more eloquent sometimes as a writer, even than he was mm. as a speaker. And you, you hit on that in the, in, towards the end of the book. Uh, Nancy Reagan is somebody who, who really did just a tremendous job in advancing that legacy, in particular at the Reagan Library and, and opening up the archives so you can, the book, Reagan in His Own Hand, that um, the Andersons wrote along with uh, Kyron Skinner and, and George Schultz um, wrote the opening to, really letting people know just how thoughtful and how um, how much time he had spent writing but, out his ideas and, 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 and developing his thinking. But really only when you see it in his own hand on legal pads, that was the evidence that this was right. Ronald Reagan. This was not an actor reading lines that somebody else had written for him. And you had asked about the library research. If, if I were ever to write another book that involved a presidential library, the first thing I would ask for would be the speech writing files. Hmm. Because that is where you see the, argu the internal arguments playing out. As when the president, when any president, I assume, well, when most presidents are going to give a big policy agenda setting speech, there are just all these memos coming in where people, where people are arguing out every sure. little piece of policy, and you really get you really get a sense of what the real time arguments were. The fissures, the debates, this. you know, kind of really what was up, and then the president ultimately comes in and, and makes yeah. that, and it's makes like, that decision. You know, and somebody will send him. I don't think you ought to say it this way, or let's, you know. Um, I want to hit on Nancy Reagan and the right, and then we'll we'll. Uh, uh, one more 
couple questions just about the lasting legacy and lessons in terms of the role of a first lady and open up questions. But, you know, you just were telling an anecdote how, how she was somewhat wary of those who weren't actually, let's say, letting Reagan be Reagan, but actually were pursuing their own agenda. Uh, one of the, the, the parts of the book that interested me is that she did have some deep relationships with uh, conservative intellectuals. Um, and it wasn't this constant tension with all of them. Um, in particular, uh, one that caught my attention was uh, Buckley. Tell us about her relationship with William F. Buckley, of course, the founding editor of National Review. Uh, it went back way before, of course, President Reagan came to office. But I was surprised to learn that they had their own correspondence, and she was quite comfortable in the world of Buckley. Oh, it, it was flirtatious. It was, it was <laughs> really, I mean, she and Buckley would, and, and again, this the relationship of the Reagans and the Buckleys go back to the 60s. Um, I think that William F. Buckley and Reagan were close and that he, he, you know, he was the great conservative intellectual and, you know, sort of helped, I think, shape some of Reagan's, the foundational parts of some of Reagan's own ideas. But Nancy would write him, for instance, as Reagan is thinking of running for governor, she's writing Buckley letters saying, I realize if, if he decides to do this, our lives are going to change. And, you know, all of her insecurities, she's kind of pouring out in these letters to William F. Buckley. And um, that the Reagans would also spend occasionally Thanksgivings with the Buckleys at their place in Connecticut. Um, it is at one of these Thanksgiving dinners that their son Ron announces that he's going to drop out of Yale after less than a semester and become a ballet dancer. Sounds like a wonderful Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner with the family. Yeah? So they, so everybody else spends the rest of the weekend trying to talk young Ron out of this, and Nancy's <laughs> going, ballet? I've never even heard him mention ballet. <laughs> so, um, uh, One other personality, obviously, is um, his place in the conservative movement today has shifted, uh, of course, during uh, uh, the Trump presidency, but George Will was also a figure that not only uh, President Reagan consulted, um, but also had a, a connection with, with Nancy Reagan, too. That surprise you, or is that kind of consistent with the, the, the she, figure? Uh, it was so interesting. She... I don't see how the, those two had a conversation, <laughs> truly. I mean, my sense of George Will and kind of how he's cut and talked, it, it, it wasn't intuitive to me. It was... Um, she, it was almost like, and I, I say this in not what the word implies, but almost like, a, a, almost like a little crush. I mean, she, they would go out to lunch together. Uh, she would, they would go hike Civil War battlefields together. She and George Will had this incredibly close friendship to the point where sometimes, I mean, people who were kind of in the know in Washington would read a George Will column and realize what they were listening to was was Nancy Reagan. Hmm. I mean, the, the two of them were extremely close um, as friends, but also very kind of simpatico in their own views of Ronald Reagan and sort of what was best for him. Uh, and it included, you know, neither of them being terribly uh, fond of the Bushes. So. <laughs> okay. We're going to move on to a different subject. Um, <laughs> You, you wrote an essay for the Wall Street Journal about your book, and, and, and you said this. Um, 
Quote, Nancy Reagan exercised an influence unlike any first lady before or since. Hers was the power of intimacy. Now, you wrote this after, like, Michelle Obama, who in my lifetime is you know, probably the most celebrated uh, first lady. Um, defend that. Explain that. Well, the one thing you realize, it's, it's, it's often been pointed out, you know, first lady is a a title that doesn't come with a job description. I mean, every one of these women, and so far they've all been women, have had to sort of figure it out for themselves, mm-hmm. uh, in part by their own interests, in part by the needs of the person who's sitting in the Oval Office. So we've seen all sorts of models. You know, Eleanor Roosevelt was almost the conscience of the Roosevelt administration. Hillary Clinton takes over an entire huge portion of policy with health care. Um, but with Nancy Reagan, what you had was, again, her husband, he was close to exactly one person in the world, and he married her. Mm. Um, she believed that, you know, her job was to be sort of the, the sentinel, uh, the person who was making sure that the people around her husband were serving her husband. As I write in the book, she... She rarely set foot in the West Wing, but if she was unhappy about something, they all knew about it. And people who were not in her good graces tended not to last very long. long. And so it was, I think, in, I think you can make, and I do, I spend 600 pages (laughs) making an argument, that it was a unique role, a role that she styled herself as the most traditional of wives, but in fact, her influence was enormous. And again, she wasn't there writing the fine print of appropriations bills. But she did sort of have a big picture sense of what it was going to take for him to succeed. But your day job at the Washington Post, you are somebody who's got a, a, a real sharp eye in terms of what happens in this town, and particularly the, the home, the house across the street from where we sit now. Did she get the job right? I mean, you said there's no description. It's like, it's like the vice president, right? Right. I mean, you know, there's no, no job description. Did she figure it out better than any first lady in, in, in our republic's history? She figured out what Ronald Reagan needed. Uh, a different president, you know, if you were Bill Clinton with, you know, your Rolodex that goes out to here and you're on the phone all night with a million people, he maybe wouldn't have needed, well, he might have needed a Nancy Reagan to keep guard for other reasons, but um, <laughs> he, he, he wouldn't have needed somebody quite like Reagan might have. Um, I think that... Well, doesn't every president need somebody looking out for them? I mean, that... But, but, and, and you're the right. the role of the chief of staff, right, I would you think. Do, you do get isolated in the job, but I do think, um, again, other presidents might have had sort of different needs and and you know the the other the great paradox of Nancy Reagan was that as as pitch perfect as she usually was about mm. what was best for Reagan's image she could be so completely clueless about her own whether it was you know buying expensive china and borrowing designer dresses in the middle of the worst recession since the Great Depression. Uh, Certainly, the astrologer blew up in her face. 
she, she again and again would kind of make these mistakes when it came to managing her image. U ultimately, I think she she got it right, but it, it did take her a while to kind of come around. Last question, and then we have a few minutes for questions from the audience. Um, Simon & Schuster called you up and said, do you want to write this book? Um, you said yes. When you started this research, obviously not having planned to write a book about Nancy Reagan, what stood out to you? Like, what surprised you? What did you, kind of what, did you come into it with a certain kind of theory? Was the prevailing narrative set in your mind? You're like, whoa, this is actually not what the evidence suggests? I, I, did, I just knew she had to be kind of complicated. This is right after she died, and I, I remember watching the funeral on C-SPAN. But I, what amazed me, and again, why a project I thought would take two years, that's what my contract said, um, took four and a half, was that every time you would peel back one layer, there'd be ten more layers to go through. And her early life was just fascinating. I mean, she grows up surrounded by people like Spencer Tracy and um, it, because her mother was an actress. And if I can share my one tiny bit of trivia, Nancy Reagan trivia, in the mm. book, it takes not even a full sentence. But when Nancy Davis goes to Hollywood mm. and has her screen test in 1949, and MGM, the powerhouse of movie studios, decides to give her a contract the fact that they gave a contract to Nancy Davis was one of the reasons they took a pass on another actress named Marilyn Monroe, which was probably the worst decision ever made by <laughs> any movie studio. Well, our rock star research assistant here at the Reagan Institute picked up on that half sentence, and I was in the preparatory materials. I was ready to answer the question only because of Thomas over here. Let's go to questions. Uh, from the audience here, uh, Ambassador Dobryansky, veteran of the uh, Reagan administration National Security Council staff. Seven years through six national security advisors okay. there. So <laughs> congratulations to you. I really found this interview, really, I, you brought so many memories back. In fact, when George, the question about George Will, it reminded me about how they would frequently go to L'Auberge Chez Francois and where they would lunch. But I have two quick questions. One is building on the speechwriters. One of the most contentious speeches that he delivered was the tear down that wall. Because within the bureaucracy, NSC and state, there were fundamental differences as to whether he should deliver that speech and use those words. And that came right out of the speech writing unit. Uh, um, I even know the recommendation made by the individual. He did it. Did she have a role in that in terms of his influence and where he came out on tear down that wall on that piece? And can I ask the second? Sure. I can't help myself, Don Regan. You mentioned <laughs> the power. You have to be asked about Don Regan. Give us the inside view on what happened there, because she's the one who brought that about. The right. Peter Robinson Don and Don Regan. There we right. go. That's okay. a speechwriter. Peter Robinson and right. Don Regan. Thank you. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I think that I think that line was just pure Reagan. I I think you know he was going to do it. Um, but so Don Regan, uh, first of all, as George Shultz would say, anybody with a brain would make a friend of the first lady. Don Regan, who becomes uh, White House Chief of Staff at the beginning of the second term, decides, 
you know, he's he's not going to deal with her. And she's she's calling him constantly with her advice. And he said, you know, um, if you want to talk to me, why don't you just tell my assistant? And he go, she goes, Don, I don't think I need to go through somebody else. But when Iran-Contra comes along, she, did, she hadn't liked this guy any, anyway. I mean, they've been like this, uh, including when Reagan um, has his colon cancer, and she really wants him to be given time to recuperate. And Reagan's telling her, no, we've got to get him out there. We can't let the country believe and the world believe the president's incapacitated. So they don't get along anyway. But when Iran contra breaks, and she realizes sooner, and certainly sooner than her husband, how deep the trouble, the potential trouble that he is in. The Senate has just gone over. The Democrats have just won back the Senate. There are going to be hearings. I mean, if it turned, you know, if, if, take a few bad bounces and impeachment's on the table. She decides that Don Regan should have known mm -hmm. what kind of rogue operation was going on in the National Security Council. She blames him for it. She tells her husband, look, we have got to we have, you know, you've, you've got to do an entire house cleaning, and it's got to start with the chief of staff, who she said understood the chief part but didn't understand the of staff part. <laughs> um, the Reagans have, this is, this is a, there's a lot of tension in the marriage. At the, I mean, they are having this argument over and over and over again. Uh, people would tell me, I mean, they, they would go at it, you know, with other people in the room. Uh, finally, she succeeds, but it takes her like three months of just relentless pressure. And ultimately, one of the re reasons that Reagan decides Reagan's got to go is that Nancy very shrewdly, when Don Reagan very famously slams the phone down on her. Now, most of us would have gone home and told our husbands ourselves what had happened. Nancy arranges for it to be leaked to <laughs> NBC correspondent Chris Wallace. So the Reagans are sitting up in the residence, eating their dinner on their little TV trays, trays watching NBC News like they did most nights. And Chris Wallace comes on the air and gives this graphic account of how the chief of staff slammed down the phone on the first lady. And Reagan turns to Nancy, that happened? Oh, yes. And then, um, and, then, and, then, and then shortly thereafter, Reagan tries to get her to take the fall for a, a, a man who was briefly appointed the new communications director to uh, replace Pat Buchanan, who had a uh, had grown up in Germany during World War II, and there was a little bit of, you know, Hitler Youth in his background. And Regan says at a staff meeting, yeah, well, that one came straight out of the East Wing. Knowing, uh, you know, the, the, Peter Walston, the White House counsel, said everybody knew anything said in those meetings was going to be in the, white, in the Wa Washington Post the next morning. Sure enough, it was. And again, Reagan was not going to let his wife take the, the fall, fall for that one.
Uh, question over here to the right. As someone who worked for President Reagan in his first term and then worked for Vice President Bush in the second, I was sort of tantalized by the way you were toying around with the George Will, Nancy Reagan relationship because those of us in the Bush world back then very much remember a, a column that George Will wrote in the Washington Post. And this is a time when newspaper columns had, you know, reverberated for months in this case, that where Will was calling Vice President Bush a lapdog and With a tinny arf. arf, wasn't it? Yeah, a tinny sound of arf. Yeah. Not, not that I remember the right. column. Um, so maybe you could just elaborate a little on what we always thought, which was that she was behind the column and that Will was taking, if not dictation from her, but that was her sentiments about you know, Vice President Bush back then. Yeah, I think that was very clear um, that in, in those, I mean, that was, I think, probably most famously the column where when everybody in Washington read that column, they thought they heard Nancy's voice in that. So. Karen Tamulti, thank you so much for being on the show and joining thank us you. here at the Reagan Institute. Available now in paperback, or soon, I should Not, say. It's still a soon, couple so you go for the so hardback. You can, you can, yeah, you can still buy the doorstop version. The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. Thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.